עד מתי שהם ידעו מה קורה עם המגיב הזה, כי הם אומרים שכשילדים מתקבצים ביחד באותו בניין, הרבה ילדים, אתה יכול להעביר מאחד לשני מי שנדבק, ואתה יכול להגביר את הסכון. השאלה אם סבא חושב שצריך לבטל את החיידרים בגלל זה. יכול ישראל which, while not directly connected to the election, rather to the issue of whether the Haredi community is capable of abiding by the COVID-19 restrictions, will almost certainly have an impact on the election, which is now less than eight weeks away. I'm Angel Pfeffer. And with me are two women who are uniquely experienced to explain how this extraordinary wave of violence may affect the election campaign, the voting and the coalition building after the election. First, my co-host, Dalia Shendi, who is a pollster and campaign strategist, has wrestled with this complex issue of how and even whether issues of state and religion influence the broader Israeli electorate. Hello, Dalia. Hi, Angel. And our guest this week, Tina Feufer, an ultra-Orthodox journalist and activist, founder of the New Haredim Organization, whose writing can be found on the independent website, Sikhaba Komit. Hi, Tina. Thanks for joining us. Hi. Good morning. Just before we go on, I'll add that this week, due to COVID-related circumstances, we are recording from three separate locations. Athena and I from our homes in the one and only holy city of Jerusalem, and Dalia is in Haaretz studio in Tel Aviv, along with our producers, Yontan Manevich and Amir Faktor. Hopefully next week we'll all be reunited. Now, Dalia, before we get tucked into our main topic for this week, There have been some other major pieces of news we need to address. Should we talk about the fact that Meirav Michaeli did, in fact, win the labor primaries, which we were talking about last time? And you, Angel, said, if she doesn't win, she doesn't deserve to be in politics, but she won. Do we think that's a good thing? Well, she won with 77% of the votes. So it's an official landslide. On the other hand, less than a quarter of labor's members have actually voted in the leadership election. But I think it is a good thing for labor because... The problem with Labour for so long is it's a party which has lost its historic role. Amos Oz said uh, 12 years ago in an interview with the Arabs that Labour's historic role has ended. And I think Mirav Michaeli is probably, from all the Labour leaders I've met and interviewed in the last 20 years, the one who is most clear-eyed and pragmatic. I mean, she's practically brutal with her assessment of where Labour has gone wrong. And I think perhaps she's also the, therefore the best equipped to maybe... save labor and reverse its fortunes. Apparently, the voters think something similar because she's getting what I would call the equivalent of a convention bounce in American terms. Labor crossed the electoral threshold in two polls this week for the first time. She's also getting surprisingly good reactions from the most jaded segment of the population, lefties, and even worse, lefty pundits. That could be because, unlike her predecessor, Amir Peretz, she represents uh, new blood, a kind of young guard. And also, unlike Peretz's predecessor, Avi Gabay, she seems to be really part of the Labor Party in terms of ideology, her professional background, her commitment to you know, labor rights, liberal causes, etc. So I think that she's generating some interest, but we'll see if those polls hold. 
good news for Micheli so far, even though, as I wrote in the Arabs this week, she just won the worst job in Israeli politics, and it's all up to her. And whether that job as Labour leader will become a slightly better position to occupy. So what else has been happening this week? Well, the joint list seems to be becoming disjointed. They're on the verge of breaking up. Mansour Abbas was in heated negotiations with the other three parties of the joint list. He's the leader of the United Arab List, representing the Islamic movement. And it looks like they didn't make it work. He's going to leave, which I think will be demoralizing for voters, specifically the majority of their voters who are Arab Palestinian citizens, like in April 2019 when they ran separately. And those parties got what Americans might call a thumping. Turnout went down. People voted for other parties, Zionist parties. That could happen again. Maybe they'll vote even for Likud, which will be something we talked about last time. But I also personally think it's an opportunity. It opens up some space for conversations about the real ideological differences between those four different parties, specifically the more conservative religious values of the Islamic movement and more liberal values in Arab society, which is, a, I think, a vigorous discussion taking place. What do you think, Angel? It was inevitable that they'll part ways, though it's not yet official as we're recording this, there still is a chance that joint lists will somehow keep together. But, I mean, as you know better than I do, as someone who's carried out so many surveys of Israel's Arab sector, there are, it's not a monolithic group, there are so many groups there. And in, and in a way, despite all the hype that there was around joint lists and various Tel Aviv hipsters voting for it, it was never really the list of Arab Israelis. It was a group of Assadists and, and, and Islamists and communists and bourgeoisie Arabs like Ahmed Tibi and people, uh, just normal middle-class Israelis who just happened to be Arab citizens. And in a way, I think it, in a way it was an unnatural creation that probably uh, has run its course. We would probably have to get into a longer discussion about why I don't agree with your uh, uh, characterization of them as Assadists. I think that's a rather marginal part of what they stand uh, for. Uh, and, and Secretary Secretary General of Hadash, the most the the leading element of the of the joint list, has repeatedly posted on Facebook peons to Bashar Assad and his great victories on the civil war. So it's certainly not a fringe element of the joint list. Their voters are mostly supporting them because they see them as their representatives. They were happy that they united. It was something that Arab voters had wanted for a long time. What else is going on this week, Anshul? Some of us are going to be making a bit of money in the next few days, apparently. And that's because Netanyahu has released a brand new elaborate economic plan, or at least it looked like an elaborate plan on the PowerPoint slide that was shown in the evening news. But the economists aren't really quite as impressed. Uh, the public has been hearing about Netanyahu's economic plans all year. The public knows it's quite a long road until those benefits trickle down to reality. And I think the real criticism that I'm hearing is, why wasn't he able to pass a national budget? If he can make a plan, if he can make an economic plan, why did he feel the need to block the passage of a national budget and bring us to this political mess just to consolidate power and be you know, the country's sole leader who can generate economic policies that are probably populist and don't work. Not sure yet what the polls are going to say about this, but as a citizen, I find it a little bit disingenuous. I think you can just remove the question mark at the end of your brief sentence, because yes, obviously the reason Netanyahu didn't pass a budget was so he can remain in sole power. If he did pass the budget, then he couldn't have got out of the rotation deal with Benny Gantz and vacating the prime minister's office in November, so that's the reason Israel doesn't have a budget. The budget is hostage to Netanyahu's political fortunes. But uh, for your experience as a pollster, how effective do you think 
his economic gestures are eight weeks before the election. Does the public even buy this kind of thing, or do they see through it as the sh- as the shameless? election bribery that it is. I mean, I think they pretty much see it as shameless election bribery. And I doubt if it's really going to make that much of an impression. My sense is that in two weeks, nobody will remember that economic plan to begin with. Netanyahu's poll ratings are remarkably stable. The range is small. It's between 27, 28, 29, 30, 31, 32, maybe a five seat range in the polls goes a little up, a little down. I doubt if uh, this kind of thing will have a huge impact also because Israelis tend not to really shift their votes based on economic concerns with one exception. And that was after the 2013 elections when uh, a number of people flocked to Yesha Tid's party because of the social protests. But other than that, economic issues don't play as big a role as you would expect them to in national elections. Well, this election may be different because of the economic crisis following the pandemic. But uh, since we're talking about polls, Another interesting development in the polls this week, for the first time, Gidon Sao, since he launched his new party seven weeks ago, New Hope, for the first time, they lost their second place in the polls. Likud, obviously, is, is, is still in poll position. And they were overtaken by Yair Lapid's Yeshatid. Is that significant, Dalia? Is it just a blip, an outlier? or a harbinger of things to come. Well, I'm so glad you asked that question because I love talking about polls. And Yair Lapid, the Eshatid, has overtaken New Hope not in one, but in three different surveys, including Haaretz's own pollster, Camille Fuchs' survey, who put Lapid actually four seats ahead, 18 to 14. Others have 16, 14, 16, 15. Basically, Yeshatid and New Hope are neck and neck. Where are SARS votes coming from? If Likud retains most of its seats, as I pointed out earlier, Blue and white seems to be basically splitting into its centrist left-leaning and centrist right-leaning factions. That's how I account for Yesha Teed's numbers and New Hope's numbers, and they are almost even in those polls. Now, when you ask if it's a blip or an outlier, I'm going to tell you listeners in advance, you're going to hear an earful from me about how to read polls and why most people do it wrong, in my opinion. But one of the iron rules is one poll is like zero. Don't listen to it. However, three polls, that's a trend. So I would say there's something genuine going on with Lapid catching up and maybe overtaking uh, New Hope, and we're going to keep our eyes on that. Yes, we're very happy to talk with Plina Feufer. Welcome to the show. Plina is the CEO of the New Haredim. We will talk about what that is shortly. She's a founding member of the ultra-Orthodox chapter of the Labor Party. Plina founded the ultra-Orthodox news portal 0202 and joined the Jewish-Palestinian board. She's committed to advancing the cause of ultra-Orthodox women, has lobbied at Knesset on their behalf, and founded a Beit Midrash for ultra-Orthodox women. She ran for the city council in 2018 after serving on the board of the Yerushalmim list for two years and won second place in the primaries. And she's also lobbied for Haredi public schools with her group, the New Haredim. Pnina, welcome to the show. Great to be here. I want to ask you to start our conversation by explaining how we, who read about what's going on in the media either here in Israel or international media, what are we seeing about this sort of Haredi rebellion? Is it a real rebellion? Is it, And what's wrong with it? Would you like to say what you think the media is not conveying well and what you think is really going on among the Haredi community at this time? What's going on in the Haredi community is, on the one hand, it's news because we're seeing it expressed in, uh, in the media and in the streets, but it's not something new as far as... Um, Frictions. It's just that until now, or most of the time, the frictions are held in place by, you know, certain factors. And these factors with Corona have um, disintegrated so that now we're seeing the frictions that are always there come to the fore. 
the Haredi parties are actually between a rock and a hard place because um, they have an awareness of what the political landscape looks like, what the public landscape looks like. They have an understanding of how this behavior is affecting uh, the Haredi image and the way Israelis, you know, mainstream Israelis who watch the news see the Haredi um, public. But their hands are tied because they've uh, hitched their wagons or, you know, had their wagon hitched. I'm not sure exactly how it happens, but to certain uh, rabbinical leaders that, well, in the Hasidic community, you have the Vizhnitzer Rebbe, the Belzer Rebbe. Most, most of the Hasidic uh, rabbis are flouting Corona um, almost entirely. You have two Hasidic rabbis that I'd say were, are the exception, which is uh, Gul, where Litzman comes from, and Karlin, which is a less uh, known Hasidut. But overall, they don't feel like they are part of all these restrictions. The Sfaradim, on the other hand, I'd say, you know, Shas is more on the other extreme. They're doing their best to fit into regular Israeli restrictions. And in the middle, we have the Litaim, Degel Torah which is Gafni, Maklev, Pindus, and their rabbinic leadership is Rav Chaim Kanievsky, who has never said to shut down schools. The order never came directly from him, rather from his grandson. So while on the one hand they're aware and they're in the government and pushing for restrictions, on the other hand they have rabbinic orders that they have to follow. So they're between a rock and a hard place. So there is actually quite some variety within the Haredi community. We need to remember there are real differences between the different communities within them. Yeah, there is a variety. And that's uh, one of the public relations stunts that the Haredi leadership is using now. They're trying to convince everybody that it's just on the fringes. You know, the, that's, their, that's their line in order to defend their constituents from the wrath of the Israeli public who's watching the news and seeing them... Uh, attending mass weddings and opening yeshivot and Talmudei Torah. But the truth is, it's not on the fringes. It's in the mainstream now. And I think that's the big story. The fringes, we're talking about people who don't vote, usually, um, you know, in mass Sharim and its environs and, and their younger community in Beit Shemesh. They were never um, expected to be fair players in the game. But here we're talking about the people who are their constituents, the people who follow the Haredi regular parties who put Gimel or Shah in the ballot box. So it's not on the fringes. Tina, I'd like to bring this back to the election. After all, that's why we're here. In my recent conversations with people in the Haredi community, I've heard two completely contradicting predictions of how everything that's happening right now will affect voting in eight weeks. One prediction is that the general atmosphere of criticism towards the ultra-orthodox will cause the community to rally around and there will be an even higher turnout than the usually very high turnout, with everyone voting for the Haredi party, Shas and United Torah Judaism. And then there's the opposite prediction, the counter-narrative, that is that many regular Haredi voters are just so angry with the situation and angry also at the lack of leadership within their own community that they'll choose to stay at home on March 23rd. And some of those who will go to the polling station may even cast a protest vote for a non-Haredi party. Which of these scenarios do you think is likely to happen? 
I think it's too early to tell. Um, in Israeli politics, and especially in the past two years of Israeli politics, we know that eight weeks is a very, very long time for predictions. I will say that both narratives have merit, but either way, the Haredi parties have an ironclass constituency. Okay, so they're, when they do a campaign, they, they're campaigning for their last uh, mandate. Okay, if they're at seven, they're always they'll be campaigning for eight. If they're at eight, they'll be campaigning for nine. They're not campaigning for all their um, votes because they know they have them. So the worry is more on Netanyahu's side because if Yaduta Torah Shas lose one or two in their numbers, it's not going to affect them as much as it will affect Netanyahu's government. So he's very very worried about it. Two and a half years ago, in the local elections, in which you ran as well, Penina, in Bet Shemesh, we saw what looked like a significant rebellion of Haredi voters who, against the rabbi's instructions, voted for a non-Haredi candidate, Aliza Bloch, as mayor. Since then, there's been much talk of wavering allegiances within the community, but we've had three Knesset elections since, and the Haredi vote seems to remain pretty solid. Do you think there's any prospect in the near future of young Haredim voting for non-Haredi parties in any large numbers? And I want to jump in and add a little bit to that same question. Is there any way to break the monopoly of the two parties that you've mentioned? There have been attempts in the past, like Chaim Amsalem's attempt to break away from Shas, the Haredi Women's Party in 2015. I think it's part of the same question. Is there any political diversity or potential? Unfortunately, at least in my uh worldview, um, I have to say that the Haredi vote that's dissenting is uh, turning right and even very much to the right. Yated, the Haredi newspaper that's published by the Degara Torah party, had a big op-ed against Smotrich because they're afraid of him. They they feel like if people won't be voting for them, that's where they're going to turn. Let's just stop and so, clarify who you mean, Betzalel Smotrich uh, of the religious Zionist party. And when you're referring to Degelat you obviously mean the Lithuanian faction of what is the United Torah Judaism list. Yes, although I, I think it equally applies to the Hasidic community as well. There are parts of it that would also, if they didn't vote for Agudat Israel, they might turn to uh, the more religious end of the national religious parties. Most Haredi voters, the easiest way for them to feel still a part of the Haredi community is to put that Haredi note into the box. Because what's easier than five minutes of your time, you go down to the polling booth, you put in your gimel or your shas, and then you feel part of the community you are once again, you know, under the auspices and the warmth and the wing of your community. So in order to get people to do something different, there has to be an alternative that makes them feel comfortable and at home and welcomed. And right now there isn't much on offer for Haredim to feel very, very comfortable. So before we wrap up this fascinating conversation, I'd like to ask both of you about how all this is going to affect voting in the non-Haredi sectors. First, you, Dalia. Since I know you've done a lot of polling on this over the years, to what extent do you think matters of state and religion have influenced voters among the general public in the past? And do you think that this time, with all the attention to the Haredi community's reaction to coronavirus, we'll be seeing something different? 
in a strange way, I don't think it will have a huge influence in, in terms of how the non-Haredi population decides to vote. And it's true that, you know, in my very first campaign in 1999, the issue of religious coercion was huge. Uh, it was a major force behind uh, cer certainly the success of the Labor Party, also the comeback of the Shinui Party, which in a couple of cycles later would get its peak ever number of seats, largely on pushing back against what was called religious coercion. But it what it really meant was resentment against what they considered disproportionate influence of Haredim on various you know, uh, aspects of the public sphere. I don't really see it as having a huge impact right now, except indirectly. And what I mean by indirect is the sense that Netanyahu is unable to manage the issue of the Haredim, and the issue is that they are not keeping the corona restrictions. And the reason why he's not really managing it or controlling it well is because he wants them and he needs them for his as his coalition backers, which many now feel is really all about protecting his personal position. So it's a kind of chain link of events that lead back to the pro or anti BB aspect of how people vote. And so it's a prominent issue, but I don't think anybody who's non-Haredi is not going to change from one party to another, certainly not from one political camp to another. They may make a decision about their pro or anti BB vote as a result of how they see him managing the question of uh, the Haredi community um, and it's, I think we have to call it a rebellion against the coronavirus restrictions. And of course, many people do blame that community. We, we need to be honest with with um, keeping the country in lockdown, refusal to keep many of the restrictions and uh, the disproportionate number of ultra-Orthodox who are sick and you know keeping the uh, numbers high and the way Netanyahu has been managing it, the restrictions are collective rather than differentiated. And so I think it's going to come back to Netanyahu. And Pina, to what extent do you feel people in the Haredi community are concerned that there may be a backlash in this election against the ultra-Orthodox? And perhaps after the election, even a new government without Haredi parties that will make fundamental changes to the status quo? I think there's a huge um, worry about that, both in the leadership, in the political leadership, and on the streets. And there's a reason for it. I mean, we see the polls of how many people are not interested in sitting with the Haredi parties. In some polls, there's a majority for a government without Netanyahu, and the Haredim know that should such a government come to pass, and not only will they not be favored like they are now, they'll be in a very bad position um, to protect their public and constituents from the anger that's in the streets right now. And that's why journalists who expose the violations are considered to be, you know, voodoo dolls by, by the Haredi leaders because it ruins their campaigns. Keep saying, it's just the fringes, it's not us. It's just the fringes, it's not us. Proving to the Israeli public that it's not on the fringes is the most dangerous thing that can happen right now to the Haredi politicians. Which is interesting, I think, because there is a lot of resentment in the non-Haredi community. But at the same time, I have noticed, I think many of us have seen over the last number of years, a very genuine debate uh, within both the journalists and political commentators about the need not to vilify this population. Angela, I know you've written about this as well. We're not, you know, nobody wants to vilify them. Um, and I think there is a question of how much the anger is justified and how much of it is a stereotype it sort of overlaps what you're talking about among the leadership of the Haredim as well. Is it the fringe? Is it everyone? It's not the fringe and it's not everyone. But the story is here that there's a population that's made a decision at, at a leadership level not to follow the, the laws. That That's where the anger is, I think. And there's a prime minister who's allowing that to happen. 
and we're all sitting in uh, quarantines and lockdowns and some people aren't. Right. Okay. Well, Panina, thank you for that very independent uh, and and thoughtful take. I'm going to invite you to stick around because we have the next section in which we're going to have a little fun. Our election campaign is entering one of its most crucial stages. Depending on when you're listening to this episode, the parties now have just one more week to file their candidates list to the Central Election Commission by the February 4th deadline. That's next Thursday at midnight. By then, we'll know finally who is split, which parties have merged, and within the lists, who got prime realistic spots, which will make them MKs and perhaps even ministers in the next government, and who are likely to fall by the wayside and remain unemployed on March the 24th. So instead of boring you all now with a lot of lengthy predictions and questions that we'll know the answers to in just a week, we're going to have a quick fire round in which all three of us will answer yes or no to a list of possible scenarios. Ready? Ready. Ready. So scenario number one, fingers on the buzzers team. Gidon Saar and Naftali Bennett joining up. Never. No. I'm saying yes. (laughs) (laughs) Number two, the joint list, despite it all keeping it together, I doubt it. I think they have real differences. Uh, yes or no, Dahlia? Doubt. I doubt it. Yes or no? <laughs> I'm being noncommittal, but on the doubting side. I'm going to go with a yes. That's bold. I am, I'm going to go with a yes as well, even though I think that this is the last time the joint list will run together. So number three, is Merit for the first time in four elections going to go it alone? Probably. Nina? No. I'm going to go with a no. I think they will merge with at least one other party. Scenario number four. Will Labour join up with Ron Khaldais, the Israelis? I'm guessing yes. They're not crossing the threshold, either of them. They have to join up. Yes, unless they go with merits. True. I'm, I, I'm going to say yes as well. And if they do, as, we, as all three of us think, join up, who's going to, going to get the number one spot on the list? Mirabi Mikhaeli or Ron Khaldais? That is a total toss-up. <laughs> I'm going to go with Mirab Mikheli. That's not, that's not an assessment. That's wish, a wishful thinking. <laughs> I, I'm going to go with Mirab Mikheli as well. As my, and my wishful thinking is that Khuday will finally see sense and realize <laughs> that his, his short adventure in national politics has been a bit, of a, a bit of a letdown for him. Next scenario. Will anyone finally join Benny No Friends Gantz's Blue and White? No. He has no friends. No way. <laughs> exactly. I, I, I have to concur. I think that boat has sailed long ago. <laughs> Does anyone want to offer any other scenarios for, for us to vote on? Well, Yadut HaTorah split into Agudat Israel and Degel HaTorah. What do you think? Has that ever happened? Yes, of course. No, they ran separate. 1988. Okay, you say yes, of course, but that was a long time ago, guys. Yes, but they're, they threaten it every time, and now I doubt it, but there is such talk, so... I'm going to say that I think that because of the coronavirus crisis, even though these tensions between Hasidim and Litvax are very real, I think because of the coronavirus crisis, they will stick together in the end. I want to ask one more little bet before next week. Will we break Israel's, I think it was a record in April 2019, of 41 parties who registered to run. Will we break that record this time? Well, it sort of depends on how many pirates and weed legalization and Bukharian immigrants parties we're going to have, really. Maybe we need a party for each strain of weed. And at the end of that quick fire round, the winner is Bibi Netanyahu. 
Now for your favorite bit, Dahlia. It is my favorite part. that we're talking about today isn't actually a jingle. It's the music to an important campaign ad. Once again, I'm going back to 2001. We've talked about it already, but apparently this campaign made quite an impression on me. Two episodes ago, we discussed Ariel Sharon's very successful jingle. This time, I'm giving you the losing side, the campaign that I worked on for Ehud Barak. Remember, it was direct elections for prime minister. One of the seedy things that we sometimes do on campaigns, listeners may have noticed wherever you are, we run attack ads on the other guy, negative attacks. This ad was called The Day After, and it's a classic campaign technique foreshadowing doom and disaster in the great tradition of the 1964 Daisy ad. This ad was a warning that Ariel Sharon was a warmonger who would drive the country to perdition and start wars. The script was modeled after Israel's Saturday evening Channel 2 weekly news roundup show which opened and still does, showing short news clips and text from the week. In that ad, we used real footage of Israel's wars and really scary stuff with the actual news musical theme, which was later replaced by the music you just heard. Based on Sharon's record and statements, we imagined where he would take the country. He was going to bomb Beirut and then he was going to come for Tehran. Egypt and Jordan were going to cancel peace treaties. Gas masks would be distributed. The airport would close. Israel will be isolated, and the ad ended by saying Sharon is too extreme. In the end, the voters thought the ad was too extreme, not Sharon, and Sharon won by a very large margin. The irony is that following 2001, Israel actually did have four more years of an intifada, the war in 2006 with Lebanon, three wars in Gaza, and ironically, as the ad warned, we're all wearing masks now, not gas masks, uh, but the airport closed this week too, and some would argue that's due to bad leadership during the corona crisis. So in a way, much of the doom scenarios did come true, which I was noticing. uh, And I, I think that it just shows, you know, what's the lesson that we can take away from this? Once a leader messes up as badly as Ehud Barak in the public's eyes, even when his outlook on the future may be right, once you've lost public trust, they simply won't believe you. And with that uh, very hopeful note, that's it for Eric's election overdose number five, also known as the Pfeffer Feufer episode. I'm Angel Pfeffer. With me was co-host Dalia Schendlin, our extra special guest, Plina Feufer, and behind the glass in Harrods studios, our producers, Jonathan Manevich and Amir Factor. Next week, our episode number six will be released a day later than usual as we will be recording after the February 4 midnight deadline so we can keep you abreast of all the latest developments, mergers, splits, ups and downs. Thank you, dear listener, for being with us and you're more than welcome to send questions which we'll endeavour to address in future episodes. You can reach us on both of our Twitter or Dalia's Facebook account, post them publicly or DM us, we want to hear from you. You can find this podcast on harris.com and on all reputable online vendors of podcasts as well as some less reputable ones. Meanwhile, do keep partying wherever you are until we meet again next Friday this time. Meanwhile, Chiva Diamo and Nehita from Jerusalem and Tel Aviv.